You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Tygo Hanrakon from the University College Dublin School of History. His paper was entitled The Biography of Bishop Francis Kerwin. What I want to do is look at a biography of a bishop and in, in a sense that's a, a funny thing to be talking about a Catholic bishop in Ireland because of course in 17th century Ireland because in a European context it's unusual to have um, resident Catholic bishops in any European state that is non-Catholic. Um, but in Ireland from 1618 Rome reconstructs a resident hierarchy. It's one of two um, hierarchies created in Europe in Partibus Infidelium. But unlike the other hierarchy, which is that of Hung- uh, Turkish Hungary, this one is resident. From by 1630, 15 bishops had been appointed to and resided in the historic seas of the island. Um, and following the collapse of the English state in Ireland in 1641, most of the island fell under Catholic control. This saw further expansion of the Irish hierarchy, with 11 new appointments in 1646 alone. For the first part of the 1640s, the bishops used their position uh, of clerical leadership to underpin the organisational structures of the de facto state of the Confederate Catholics of Ireland. In 1648, however, the Irish Church was convulsed by political issues centred around the terms in which the Confederates could make peace with their Protestant monarch, Charles I. Bitter disputes developed between certain members of the Irish hierarchy and the papal nuncio, Gian Battista Rinuccini, and those bishops who opted to support him as a mouthpiece of Roman policy. Now, Rinuccini ultimately excommunicated his opponents, which further embittered what became a Confederate civil war. The onset of the Cromwellian conquest in 1649, which smashed the structures of the Irish Catholic Church, um, meant that by the middle of the 1650s, the number of bishops in the island had been reduced to just one, a bedridden prelate largely kept alive on sips of whiskey. This meant that the practical implications of the split of 1641 became largely irrelevant, although a great deal of bitterness and antipathy continued to exist, particularly among Irish clerical exiles on the continent. For many Irish Catholics, and particularly those of Gaelic stock, the disasters of the Cromwellian conquest was a clear proof of the manner in which their people had become the subject, had become the subject of divine retribution for sinful behaviour. And above all, they identified that sinful behaviour as the crime of having set the cause of peace with the king above fidelity to Rome and obedience to the papal nuncio. This logic was bitterly resented by those who had opposed the nuncio. Prominent within the ranks of those who had refused to accept this reading of events were a number of clerics from the west of Ireland with strong links to the old English town of Galway. Ultimately, the most distinguished literary spokesperson of this group proved to be John Lynch, a Galway cleric who went into exile following the Cromwellian capture of the town. In Alithenologia and Supplementum Alithenologiae, Lynch provided a powerful and comprehensive defence of the party which had opposed the papal nuncio and strongly articulated the notion of compatibility between Catholic identity and loyalty to the House of Stuart. Lynch fiercely opposed the notion that the disasters of the 1650s were proof of divine displeasure and disputed the idea that the best Christians were inevitably those 
um, who were prepared to fight for the religion. Instead, he defended the actions of those who'd wished to make peace with the king on the grounds of prudence. Now, in the wake of these polemical and politically engaged texts, under his own, um, which he issued under a pseudonym, in 1669, under his own name, Lynch published Pi Antistitis Icon, um, the text which uh, Cullum read out there, the title of which he read out, which is a biography of the recent, recently deceased Bishop of Kalala, Francis Kerwin. Kerwin was a Galway native who had previously acted as Lynch's patron, in particular supporting him during his studies at Dieppe in the second decade of the 17th century. Having previously served as Vicar General to the absentee Archbishop of Toome, Florence Connery, and then to his resident successor, Malachi O'Quilly, Kerwin was eventually elevated to the hierarchy himself for Kalala in 1645. Now, this personal relationship and reverence which Lynch felt for his fellow Galway citizen was evidently a key element in his decision to produce this biography. Lynch clearly believed that Kerwin was a saintly man and one who, suffering for the faith and exile from Ireland in the 1650s, had elevated him to what in the primitive church would have been a confessor of the faith and, in a technical sense, to a certain status of martyrdom. The emphasis on Kerwin as a prelate and bishop in the text is also noteworthy noteworthy, as it was precisely during this period that Lynch himself was under consideration for elevation to the Irish hierarchy, a position which he subsequently declined in order to remain in France. Lynch's Lynch's portrayal of the ideal bishop in his biography of Kerwin, therefore, may have been related to his own internal questioning concerning an Episcopal role for himself. But in addition to this personal spiritual meditation on the Episcopal office, Three other important themes, I think, can be seen to emerge from Lynch's biography. The first can be seen as part of a wider Catholic Irish project in the 17th century of providing a historicised identity for the post-Tridentine Catholicism, which had become increasingly pronounced among the Irish population, and most notably among its continentally formed clerics, such as both Lynch, the author, and Kerwin, the subject of this biography. Much of the biography is devoted to detailing what Kerman's activities were. He is shown as having visited constantly, both as Vicar General of Tume and later as Bishop, and the impeccably tridentine goal of these visitations was instruction and to inculcate frequentation of sacraments, particularly the Eucharist and penance. This visitation was not only to easily accessible urban areas, but in difficult terrain, even out to the remote Aran Islands. It's funny how many bishops are the first to go to the Aran Islands, apparently, in the 17th century. Um, Malaku Quili and, and Kerwin are apparently both the first bishops to go to the Aran Islands. As bishop, even while he was imprisoned himself, he continued to minister the sacrament of confirmation. As bishop, this is one of his great duties, and even from his cell, He had children brought to him so that he could minister confirmation to them. Another key characteristic of the bishop was his asceticism. Lynch presents him as a prelate who relished poor food and avoided rich fare to the extent that the flesh barely covered his bones. He mortified his flesh both in the daily round of his life, his scourge and hair shirt and their marks on his body being discovered on his death. And here, clear parallel with Borromeo, I think, which I'll come back to later, and also while on pilgrimage to holy sites such as Croke Patrick and St. Patrick's Purgatory. But he is presented also as a prelate who did not shrink from exerting his authority on behalf of God's law. To those who were obstinate, he threatened excommunication, but fulminated so long and dreadfully on the effects which this would have upon them that the terror of the threats was generally sufficient to bring the recalcitrant into line. Thus he combined the salutary power of fear with prudence. He was harsh and usury, had adulterers publicly whipped, 
banished sexually incontinent priests to do penance in remote areas and published priestly gambling heavily. He's presented also as a champion of learning, stressing the importance of this to the priests under his authority. Those he, whom he judged inadequate were forbidden to administer the sacraments. Again, the clear goal here about maintaining the dignity of the sacraments as vehicles to God. While vicar general of Tume, he insisted that trainee priests spend a year in his household. Older priests whom he uh, suspected of insufficient learning also had to live under his supervision until he judged that they were fit to discharge their responsibilities. He promoted learned disputation of the Jesuit Cardinal Tolito's Summa Casum Sive Instructio uh, Sacerdotum as a means of increasing the educational standard and awareness of his priests. It was he who brought the Society of Jesus to Galway. And before the brief efflorescence of Irish Catholicism as a public faith after 1641, he supported foreign schools for the formation of Irish priests. As bishop, he also embraced the responsibilities of charity. He is portrayed as an ardent protector of widows and orphans and succoured prisoners in jail, ensuring not only that they received confession and the Eucharist prior to their judgment, but also a good meal. He fulfilled his family responsibilities by dowering his sisters, but he also provided dowries for poor girls to enable them to marry. Now, Kerwin, as even just a brief summary of the biography can, 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 can indicate here, is an exemplar of the saintly prelate, which had become such an important figure within Tridentine Catholicism. Like Barameo, he is portrayed as personally ascetic and utterly devoted to his duty as bishop, who does not shrink from the exercise of authority, but also embrace the demands of charity. And as a bishop of the Catholic renewal should, he placed a primary emphasis on education and instruction. In one area alone, I think, Kerwin is portrayed as not fulfilling a critical aspect of Episcopal office as understood in Tridentine terms, namely in personal preaching. Here, his personal modesty and diffidence are portrayed as the key reasons, but significantly, his flock were not deprived because of his concern to ensure that adequate, adequate preachers were available for their instruction. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of this classic Tridentine biography, of which there are many exemplars all over continental Europe in the 17th century, are the repeated references to Episcopal exemplars from Ireland's medieval past. Lynch lovingly enumerates Kerwin's mode of visitation. For instance, the manner in which he did it on foot, like St. Malachy. Like Malachy, Kerwin resists elevation to the hierarchy, and he's compared also to St. Lawrence O'Toole of Dublin. Kerwin is presented as like these men. But of course, this also had the effect of making them like him. Thus, the highly tridentine virtues which Kerwin is shown to exemplify, are projected into the Irish past, creating a lineage of bishops. The li this linking of Ireland's medieval heritage and its Tridentine presence is heightened by the references to Kerwin's early modern European heroes and exemplars, most notably the Bishop of Bishops for the Tridentine period, Carlo Borromeo, for whom Kerwin is presented as having a particular veneration. The stitching together of the past within this Tridentine perspective is perfectly exemplified in the, section, in the section on the litany of saints to which Kerwin regularly prayed. Augustine, Patrick, Nicholas of Magar, Francis of Assisi, Carlo Borromeo, Ignatius Loyola and Francis Xavier. These are the key figures. Their holiness and the holiness of Kerwin are presented as essentially the same. The virtues of the Tridentine bishop are portrayed as essentially timeless. Rather than the cultural construction of the early modern era, they are the modern outcrop of a timeless and essentialist identity. 
Now, one of the byproducts of the aligning of the differences between the past and the present is a similar blurring of the differences between the different ethnic identities in Ireland. This is particularly significant as the splits which had convulsed Irish Catholicism in the 1650s had become mapped to a considerable extent onto the ethnic fissures within the Irish population. Most of the most outspoken opponents of the papal nuncio were of old English origin, and some of their most scathing denunciators, most notably Richard O'Farrell, the figure with whom Lynch had dueled with the print in Alethanologia and Supplementum Alethanologiae, had not been slow to draw attention to this fact. In particular, this is a major trope of O'Farrell's work, um, the, the, the relative superiority of the Gaelic Irish. Resentment of the old English assumption of cultural superiority had been a rumbling, figure of Ga- a rumbling feature of Gaelic Catholicism during the first half of the 17th century. Indeed, the great hagiographical projects launched by the Gaelic Irish Franciscans at Louvain had been partly aimed at protecting Gaelic Catholicism from the imputation of barbarity at the hands of their old English co-religionists. The biography of Kerwin, however, largely ignores the ethnic diversity of Irish life. Kerwin was an old Englishman from Galway, but the Archdiocese of Toom, where he was Vicar General, and the Diocese of Kalala, where he was Bishop, were largely Gaelic-speaking. Kerwin was probably fluent in the Gaelic tongue, but that he ministered to two different populations is simply not mentioned. But just as Lynch presents a seamless unity between medieval Gaelic Episcopal figures, Gaelic figures such as Malachy or Lawrence O'Toole, so too he presents um, the contemporary Gaelic bishops such as Malachy O'Queely as identical to their old English counterparts. Unlike Lynch or Kerwin, O'Queely, who was appointed Archbishop of Toome in 1630, came from a very different background than the old mercantile Old English stock of Galway. Indeed, he was representative of precisely the Gaelic social group, which was substantially displaced as landowners in the west of Ireland by Old English merchants through processes of mortgage in exactly this period. But Lynch portrays O'Queely in very similar terms to Kerwin himself, simply as a saintly prelate, and notes also the miracles performed by the relics of the dead archbishop who was killed by Protestant forces in 1645. I think this biography, therefore, can be situated as part of that wider Old English movement, which eschewed the rather patronising attitudes evinced by a figure such as John Roach, the Bishop of Ferns in the 1620s and the 1630s, and which embraced the idea of a common Irish Catholic identity in which both Old English and Gaelic Irish shared. In this way, Old English figures also could glory in the heroic past of Gaelic Christianity and its multitudinous saints, and situate themselves as natural heirs along with their Gaelic contemporaries to that tradition. But in addition to this wider framework of Irish Catholicism, this trans-ethnic framework, the biography is in also many ways a tribute to the Catholicism of Lynch's and Kerwin's native city of Galway. While Kerwin, a Galway native, is very much the centre part of the narrative and his concern for the city in which he was born and the reciprocal affection that bound him to its inhabitants is constantly portrayed, other saintly characters are also extolled, most notably Arthur Lynch, Kerwin's uncle, and Patrick Lynch, the warden of the collegiate church, go as most important ecclesiastical foundation. Like Kerwin, these are presented as intensely holy men. Patrick Lynch, in particular, is the subject of one anecdote which serves to underpin the idea of the religious culture of Galway as entirely consonant with the spirit of Catholic renewal, and in particular, its horror of the notion of the contamination of the sacred with the profane. The biography records how Patrick Lynch administered the Eucharist to a gravely sick man who immediately vomited it back. Fearing desecration of the host, Lynch therefore swallowed the entire vomit, which apparently neither caused him any nausea nor any subsequent health problems. (laughs) 
One can surmise that for the author, John Lynch, this insistence on the hospitality of Galway to the culture and spirit of Catholic renewal was probably connected with some urgency to the rumbling fallout from the convulsions within the Irish church in the late 1640s. In a real sense, Galway had been the primary site of this cleavage. The leaders of Episcopal opposition to the papal nuncio, Rinuccini, were precisely a group of bishops drawn from the city and its environs. Under the leadership of John Burke, the Archbishop of Tume, and including Andrew Lynch, the Bishop of Kilfenora, and kinsman of both Kerwin and the author, and Kerwin himself, who was one of John Burke's supporters. The Jesuits, whom Kerwin had helped to establish in Galway, also played a significant role in these divisions. Tensions, moreover, were vastly accentuated by the fact that the Papal Nuncio himself also withdrew to Galway and was resident in the city at the same time as John Burke and his allies, who personally broke the Nuncio's interdict on the Collegiate Church of St Nicholas in 1648. Now, as noted previously, John Lynch, the author of the biography, had been one of the most significant literary partisans of the anti-Annuncios grouping throughout the 1660s. But rather than stoking these antagonisms, the biography operates to deflect and soothe them. There is very little reference to Kerwin's role in the disturbances of 1648. What instead is noted is the Nuncio's affection for Kerwin, and then Kerwin's later repentance at having opposed Rinuccini, and the conscientious way that he sought to uh, absolution from the Nuncio's censures. The episode therefore merely becomes a slight ripple in the smooth glass of the recounting of Kerwin's saintly life, and indeed serves to emphasise his modesty and conscientiousness. Hiding behind this particular portrayal too, perhaps, is the inference that if such a saintly figure as Kerwin opposed Rinuccini, then the action was not without a certain legitimacy. But the manner of the presentation is to deflect attention away from this utterly divisive issue. In conclusion, therefore, I think that Pi Antistitis Icon is a text which can be read on a number of different levels. On the one hand, it is a deeply personal tribute by John Lynch to a figure whom I think he unquestionably saw as genuinely saintly. This, one can surmise, is precisely the aspect of the text which attracted such a fervent exemplar of the 19th century devotional revolution, C.P. Meehan, to the biography which he republished, republished in 1848. On a personal level, too, the text may have operated as a meditation on the qualities necessary for Episcopal service at a time when its author was being considered for elevation to the Irish hierarchy. But the text also offers an oblique and ironic take on some of the most important political issues within 17th century Irish Catholicism. Like much of the Catholic literature of that period, it partakes entirely of the endeavour to create an essentialist Catholic identity in Ireland. The faith and behaviour of Francis Kerwin is no different from that of his medieval predecessors, and the, the spirit of Tridentine renewal is presented as entirely consonant with the historic past of the island. The book, therefore, can be seen as another part of that literary endeavour to create the notion of an inextricably Catholic Irish identity. As the text of an old Englishman, this is particularly interesting for those medieval predecessors were, of course, Gaelic. The text treads a careful middle ground between traditional Old English condescension towards the Gaelic population and Gaelic rejection of Old English political Catholicism. Ethnic identity is simply subsumed and replaced by notions of Catholic virtue, which are acknowledged as present in both population groups, as exemplified by Curran himself and the man for whom he acted as Vicar General, Malachi O'Quilly. Yet while even-handed in its acknowledgement of Gaelic exemplars of holiness, the text is also a loving endorsement of the religious culture of Galway, Lynch's native city. 
Kerwin is very much a holy Galway man. And while he's the main character of the biography, it is stocked also with other examples of the city's ability to produce wise and saintly figures. Finally, the biography is in a sense another but different contribution by Lynch to the great and bitter direct debates which had racked Irish Catholicism since the Nuncio's interdict of 1648. By addressing the life of a significant protagonist in those various events, but by essentially downplaying this aspect of his career, Lynch offers the notion of a wider and common Catholic identity which does not need to be mired in the bitterness of the late 1640s. The crisis of 1648 was not the pivot of Kerwin's life, and therefore it does not have to be the pivot of Irish Catholic identity in the 1660s. And the fact that so saintly a figure as Kerwin could have opposed the nuncio is in a sense a softly spoken endorsement of those positions, but one voiced utterly without stridency. Moreover, in Kerwin's humble concern to seek absolution, to acknowledge his own faults, a lesson can be said to be contained for others who still bitterly dwelled on these issues. The text thus offers a way of composing these divisions based on humility and the adoption of a wider perspective which stressed what Irish Catholics shared rather than what divided them.